Hello again, boxing fans. Welcome to episode number 149 of The Neutral Corner. I am your host, Michael Montero, for BoxingMonthly.com and Boxing Monthly Magazine. And before we get into news and notes this week, I want to get into my fee for episode 149 of TNC. Guys, uh, you know, I don't charge a monetary fee. I provide this, uh, this podcast for you guys every week, rain, snow, or shine, whether the schedule is loaded or not. And I always ask you guys for a fee. It's non-monetary, though. This week, what I'd like you guys to do is if you ain't doing nothing Friday night, to tune into a broadcast of some fights that I will be commentating on. I will be calling a card, a small card from Charlotte, North Carolina, that Christy Martin is putting on. Christy Martin's fight night. Remember Christy Martin from uh, really did a lot of her fighting in the 90s, early 2000s, fought everybody. Mia St. John, Layla Ali, Holly Holm, uh, did very, very well for herself. One of the real pioneers of female boxing in America. I remember she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She did a lot of good work for female boxing. She is doing her own promotional company now, and she's been promoting in North Carolina for the last two years. And they're putting on a small little card, like I said, Friday in Charlotte. I'll get more information about the live stream, but I will be calling the fights there live ringside Friday night. So I will find out uh, information about the stream. For those of you in North Carolina, in the Charlotte area who want to go, uh, tickets, I think, are anywhere from like $35 to $75. The, the venue is called Center Stage. It's three miles, I think, outside of downtown. Uh, it's a small venue. I think it's about 350 or so when it seats. It's, you know, it's a club show, so it should be a lot of fun. These small club shows are always a good time. So those of you in the Charlotte area who want to go, uh, message me. Email me at MonteroUnboxing at gmail.com. Or uh, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is. Drop a comment here if you're watching on YouTube um, this episode of TNC. And I'll get you some more information. But I'll be posting it on social media all week. But those of you guys who are listening or watching this episode of TNC from all over the world, my request is that you watch this thing Friday night if you can. Check me out. Tune in for a little bit and watch me uh, do my thing. And I'm trying to get more and more experience commentating. You guys have seen me do it for uh, Thompson Boxing, and I should be doing more of those cards in 2019. So we'll see. As uh, Christy Martin builds up her promotional profile, maybe I can build up my commentating profile. I might even be doing the ring entrances too. I don't know all the information yet, guys, at the time I'm recording this episode, but I will get that information to you. I will pin it in a comment on the YouTube here on uh, TNC149, and I'll be blasting it all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, yada, yada, yada. So that is your fee for this episode, guys. Tune in if you can and watch me do my thing, all right? Let's get into news and notes. Okay, so uh, Tony Bellew officially retires. Now look, we all... No, we knew he was going to retire, right? He talked about it before his fight with Usyk, where he performed very, very well, better than people expected, before being stopped. And there's no shame in that to Oleksandr Usyk, who, look, might be the best fighter pound for pound right now. He hasn't proven that yet. He's certainly in the top five. But uh, losing to, to Usyk, no shame in that. And Bellew bows out. Will he come back? I don't know. He's made a ton of money with Eddie Hearn. He's done movies. He's got a future, I think, in broadcasting. And honestly, just I'm just going to say entertainment. The guy could do anything he wants over there in the, in the UK. He could go into soap operas. He could go into films. He literally can do whatever the hell he wants. So uh, is there a, a fight big enough for him to come back for? I don't think so. I think this is it for him. He's retired for good. Truly an overachiever, I think. And I mean that in a good way. Meaning he got, I don't think he was the most athletic, most skilled guy, you know, just look at his frame and you can see what I'm talking about, but he got everything out of his ability, you know, a hundred percent out of him. You know, a lot of guys who are super, super talented, super athletic, they're underachievers to a degree. They're lazy, they're fundamental, fundamentals, they slip because they rely so much on their natural talents. 
Bellia was a guy who didn't have those natural talents and had to really, really uh, learn on the job and perfect his style and his craft. And he did that. He carved out a very successful career for himself. So good luck in retirement, Tony Bellew. Uh, great personality, good guy, and um, deserves nothing but the best in retirement. So good luck to him. Okay, so um, that was some good news. Let's get on to some bad news. Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez injured, withdraws from his December 8th fight. That was going to be in Los Angeles, headlining an, an HBO card that Tom Loeffler was putting on. This was going to be HBO's last boxing broadcast, technically. And so if you were looking forward to seeing Chocolatito and the LA fans, you guys have seen him up close and personal a couple times now. Um, you know, this is a bit of a buzzkill. Personally, for me, I don't know if, if Gonzalez should still be fighting. I know he looked good in his last fight, but the guy was made to order for him. I just, you know, at the top level, I don't know, man. I don't look at this as a buzzkill because very, very possible that Juan Francisco Estrada may replace Chocolatito in that main event. Loeffler wants to keep that main event on. Of course, you got Cecilia Brekus, who actually, you know what, stand corrected. I think Cecilia Brekus is the main event. And then uh, Clarissa Shields, they're fighting. However you feel about that, good, bad, indifferent, I don't know, but... If they can get Juan Francisco Estrada on this card, he's one of the better little fighters in the world. And of course, people want to see Estrada in there again with, uh, with Sorun Visay, maybe Chocolatito if he keeps fighting. So if he gets on that card, I actually think it's, it's good to go. You know, So I look at that as a wash. But uh, yeah, so Chocolatito is out. And I want to say this is not the first time in recent years that he's had to pull out of a fight due to injury or visa issues, things like that. So again, he's just kind of at that point in his career where yeah, I don't know if he needs to be fighting. But it's his life and he's still uh, one of the very best little fighters in the world. Now, a couple fights coming together. Uh, Bryant Jennings is fighting Oscar Rivas. That's been finalized for January 18th on ESPN+. Plus. That'll be at the Turning Stone Resort and Casino in Verona, New York. So uh, we already got some, some action already on the schedule for early 2019, especially January. So, you know, look, with all the different platforms, and I know that there's issues because, you know, you got a certain group of fighters on ESPN+. Plus. You got another group on Showtime slash Fox another group on zone, But the benefit to that is the schedule is freaking loaded. It seems like there's boxing on every weekend. And you go back just, you know, four or five years, guys, it wasn't like that. I remember the first few months of the year, there wasn't shit on TV usually when it came to boxing. Maybe ESPN Friday Night Fights, you know, that level of thing happening. But you did not get Major televised cards, and I'm not calling Jennings Rivas a major televised card. Obviously, it's on the ESPN Plus app. But, of course, you know, we got uh, Pacquiao Broner and, you know, fights like that. You didn't get fights like that in January, February. You know, you had to wait till March, April. So, boxing's heading in a good place right now. I don't, all, all the different platforms, yeah, it makes me nervous. Hopefully, the sanctioning organizations force fighters in these different platforms to uh, face each other through mandatories and things like that. That is my hope and that the promoters work together. We, that remains to be seen. But I love that we've got fights in January to look forward to. I love that. Also uh, possible for March 23rd in Madison Square Garden, a fight between Terrence Crawford and Luis Colazzo. I always want to say Collazo. That's just how his name looks to me, but they pronounce it Collazo. Anyway, what the hell has Collazo done to deserve a fight with Terrence Crawford, who might be pound for pound the best fighter in the world? He's certainly number one or number two right there with Lomachenko. I don't know. Now, we just saw uh, Kavaliauskas, the mean machine, uh, beat uh, Ariaza on a card. I think he was, was that a KO3 or something. If anyone deserves the fight with Crawford, it's him. I don't know what the hell Colazzo's done. He's fought twice in the last three and a half, almost three and a half years since his loss to Keith Thurman, which I think was in the summer of 2015. So um, 
I, I don't know, man. I mean, stay busy fight, I guess, for Crawford. But you're taking this to the garden. There better be a really strong co-feature. I don't know. But you got to think that's going to be on regular ESPN. And that's a showcase fight for Crawford. And uh, Colazzo's from the Northeast, uh, that area. So, you know, maybe some of his fans will travel. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And then um, one last news and notes. You know, I, hint, I talked about it before, you know, right at the opening. Guys, there, there's a card in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, this Friday, I will be calling the action ringside. So uh, I will get you streaming information as far as the website and everything. You guys can tune in live if you got nothing going on Friday night. And uh, several prospects on this card, you know, some local prospects from, from the Carolinas. And then uh, there's a Rock Nation prospect, Tyler McCreary, who is an undefeated featherweight. He's 15-0. and 0. He's out of Toledo. A pretty good amateur, had an 87-15 amateur record. He's on that card as well. So some promising-looking prospects. That's the level of card it is. It should be a lot of fun. And I'll give you guys more information as it comes. Okay, so that's it for news and notes this week. Let's get into the review of what we saw last week. Last Friday, November 23rd in Mexico City, there was a Telemundo card, and in the main event, Ganigan Lopez scored a unanimous decision in a 10-rounder over Ricardo, Ricardo Rodriguez and won a minor vacant flyweight title. That was really it for Friday action. Now, on Saturday, there was a bunch going on. Uh, Saturday, November 24th, that is. In New Zealand, in Auckland, New Zealand, Lucas Brown scored a KO5 win. Remember him? Scored a, a knockout win over uh, Ruslan Shigayev a few years back and grabbed a piece of the WBA heavyweight title and then all hell broke loose. He's had performance enhancing drug issues multiple times and then uh, really just a brutal knockout loss to Dillian White. But I think he's 2-0 since then, maybe 2-3-0 since then and gets a win over in Auckland, New Zealand. Now, in Monaco, there was a matchroom card on Zone. This was in the Casino de Monte Carlo Salle Medicine. I'm probably butchering that. But in the main event, we had a robbery of the year, ladies and gentlemen. This was a horrible, horrible decision. Khalid Yafai stays perfect technically with a 12-round unanimous decision win over Mexican fighter Israel Gonzalez. You guys might remember Gonzalez's name because uh, he fought Jerwin Ancajas earlier this year, I believe in February, and was dropped three times and stopped. Ancajas completely dominated him. Gonzalez came into this fight uh, just ready to go to war. It was very, very active, started off very fast, and to me, clearly, won at least the first half of this fight. Probably won four or five of the first six rounds of this fight. Uh, there was a clash of heads, I think, and there was, some, there was a headbutt that caused some, some bleeding, but that slightly changed the momentum. I thought Yafai uh, started to have moments in the middle rounds and landed the cleaner, sharper, maybe flashier punches later in the fight. But at best, this was a draw. I don't know how these three judges got to these scores. So uh, Jean-Robert Lane, who's from Monaco, who's a local judge, and Panamadian Gustavo Padilla, both had it 116-112. Eight rounds to four for your five. I don't know what the hell they were watching. An Italian judge slash referee, Giuseppe Corterone, scored at 117-111. Now you might remember this guy's name, from the Anthony Joshua-Joseph Parker fight that he officiated. One of the worst, just most awkward officiating jobs I've seen in recent years. Now here he is, a, a year later, not even a year later, judging a fight, a title fight, on another matchroom card. So guys, I, just to me, this is the worst decision of 2018. I can't think of a worse decision this year. Look, I, I, this was a close fight. Okay, it's not that Gonzalez dominated or anything like that. You could make a case. I didn't score this for you five, but you could make a case that this was a draw or, you know, if, you, if you're giving you five every benefit of every doubt, okay, 
But to me, this was clearly a very narrow and competitive, but a clear win for Gonzalez. Seven rounds, maybe even eight rounds for him. For these judges to have it as wide as they did for Yafai really blows my mind. Worst decision of 2018. And the thing is, I've talked about this. Some of these matchroom cards recently, and it's not just in the UK, so we can't call this a UK judging thing because none of these judges were from the UK. This was in Monaco. It's a matchroom thing. This is a trend that I'm starting to see. And look, I still think that, you know, did I overreact a little bit to the scorecards between uh, Usyk and Bellew? Yes, uh, that was a close competitive fight, but I thought Usyk was ahead. And for one judge to have it 5-2 Bellew after seven rounds, that was a terrible scorecard. And for any of you out there who had, it, who had Bellew ahead five rounds to two at that time, you need to learn how to score freaking fights because that's terrible. But Usyk, you know, the scorecards didn't matter because Usyk ended the show. You know, you go back, Anthony Joshua, uh, the stoppage with Carlos Tecum, that, that was an unnecessary stoppage. The scorecards, two of the three judges had him ahead of Klitschko at the time of that stoppage, which was uh, terrible scorecards. Only one judge, I think Steve Eisfeld, had that fight scored correctly at the time of the stoppage. I have seen several, several of these uh, just questionable scores Sometimes it's just one or two of the judges. Sometimes it's all three, like in this case, on these matchroom cards recently. That is something that the UK media, and I got to say this about the UK boxing media for the most part, they do not ask tough questions. They do not go in on guys like Eddie Hearn and Frank Warren enough. They, they throw softball questions. And look, this podcast is for a, a British fight magazine that I contribute to. So I'm not trying to beat up on UK fight scene. You guys know I'm a huge supporter of the UK fight scene. I think it's, it's amazing what they're doing over there. And I give Eddie Hearn a lot of credit. And I defend him when he gets bashed, I think, unfairly by a lot of fans over in the UK. But this is a trend that you know I, I've noticed recently. And, and nobody, nobody in the UK media seems to be going in on Eddie Hearn and asking him about this. So you guys need to start doing it on Twitter. And I'll tell you another thing. This was a defense. This was the fourth defense of Yafai's WBA super flyweight title. So these were WBA approved judges. You guys need to blow up the WBA on Twitter. They have a Twitter account. Blow them up. Harass the shit out of them and ask them about these judges and this decision and what will be done about it. Because there is no way in hell Khalid Yafai won eight or nine rounds in this fight. Six or seven if you're giving him the benefit of every doubt. But two judges gave him eight rounds, one judge gave him nine rounds. Guys, that's egregious. So get on social media, get on Twitter, annoy the living hell out of the WBA about this decision and give Eddie Hearn and Matchroom some shit because ultimately they approve these judges as well. And Corterone, who I talked about, who did a horrible officiating job, this ain't the first time he's worked with Matchroom recently. So guys, take control as fans, exercise your voice, and start harassing these people or you're going to see more shit like this, okay? You have the power, so use it. Now... Also on this card, Dennis Lebedev gets a unanimous decision win. Um, a minor upset, I guess. I, I didn't really look at it as an upset, but Fan Long Meng, who is a, a Chinese fighter, a six foot two Southpaw 2012 Olympian, and uh, lost a very, very close decision to Yamaguchi Falcao, a, a controversial one uh, in the 2012 Olympics, or else he might have meddled. Scores a TKO5 over Frank Buglioni. So I think a lot of people favored Bulioni because people, you know, especially in the UK, they knew his name. But Fen Long Meng, man, he's someone to, someone to keep a look on, you know, keep a look at with this guy. Um, because he looked pretty good in this fight and going up against a more experienced fighter who's been in with some good guys. Michael Hunter scores a TKO9 win over Alexander Ustinov, the statue. Uh, Hunter, 16-1 now. 
And his only loss was to Oleksandr Usyk. No shame in that. This, of course, was at heavyweight. Ustinov much bigger than Hunter. Hunter says he wants a rematch with Usyk at heavyweight whenever he does move up to heavyweight. Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing it. If Usyk moves up to heavyweight, which we know he eventually will, why not take his time and build it up slow? So, you know, Hunter would be a good first choice. Also on this card, I talked about this guy uh, a little bit last week, Daniar Yeliusinov. No, hold on. Yeliusinov. There we go. Uh, proved a 5-0 with a win. He is a Kazakh-born, Brooklyn-based welterweight southpaw to keep an eye on. Good-looking prospect. Then over in the USA, the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, to be uh, exact, Atlantic City, New Jersey. This was a main event show on HBO. And uh, there was maybe about 3,500 people there. Um, I've been pretty good with some, some folks at main events who uh, drop a little inside info on me and uh, were kind enough to kind of give me a report from uh, ringside. Not a huge crowd, you know, uh, like I said, 3,000 to 3,500 people, but they were lively. And I guess Dimitri Bevel, who is, of course, the main event, during the undercard, some of his stablemates were fighting and was sitting around press row just hanging out before his fight watching some of his guys fight. And uh, some of the press people were talking to Beevil, shooting the shit with them, and a lot of fans were coming over and hanging out with them and taking pictures and stuff, and Beevil was obliging all of them. Now you think about it. How many guys who are headlining a major card well, you know, headlining a, a card on a major network, let's put it that way, would be just hanging out, willing to take pictures with fans and shoot the shit with them a little bit on fight night. I mean, that's pretty cool. Dimitri Bevel is a super humble, super nice guy who really is making a, an attempt to endear himself to American fight fans. And um, I, I just, I think fighters who come from other parts of the world, who come over here, you know, try to learn English, try to inter interact with American fans, uh, are open and transparent with fans uh, and media, I think that deserves credit. And I think that, you know, we need to give these guys credit for that. Now, actual fight. Dimitri Bevel versus Jean Pascal. Uh, Bevel stays perfect, gets the W, but it wasn't a thrilling win, right? A lot of people on paper, looked at this and thought that he was just going to plow through Pascal, knock him out in three, four rounds. And I told everybody when this fight was signed, don't be surprised if this shit goes rounds. It could even go the distance. And people thought I was freaking nuts. But I, I was saying that all along because Pascal, say what you will about him, he's a veteran. He's been in there with everybody. He knows how to survive. He's got a crazy, awkward, herky-jerky style, doesn't throw a lot of punches, and if you're trying to get a guy out of there, you need him to throw punches because it's, it's when a fighter throws punches at you that you are able to return fire. And that's how you hurt a guy. You get him reaching, you make him miss, you make him pay. When you got a guy in there who doesn't throw a lot of punches, it's hard to get him out of there. And what I saw with Pascal is there were little moments in this fight where he really did come forward and try to land combos but it was 30 seconds of that, and then it was back to defense and just trying to survive. He just wanted to go to distance and get that moral victory and get one more payday, and um, that's what he did. You know, For Bevel, there's a little bit of Floyd Mayweather, Vladimir Klitschko, Bernard Hopkins, Andre Ward in him in terms of mentality, in the sense that would he like to get the stoppage? Yeah. Will he go for it when it's there? Yeah. Is he capable of getting the stoppage? Yes. However, his mindset is to win rounds and do what he does. Is it maybe one speed? Is it maybe, uh, I don't want to say one trick pony or one dimensional because he's not, but it's kind of one speed. He does one thing very well. He gets that lead foot way out there to give his opponent a little bit of an obstacle to get around, and he bounces out with his feet. He doesn't really move his head. He uses his feet as his defense, and then he throws very straight punches at you so that he gets maximum length 
and he's generally speaking out of position, out uh, at a distance where you cannot counter him, generally speaking. You can hit him because he does uh, move in straight lines, but it's going to take a very fast, uh, athletic fighter who throws punches from different angles and is busy to do that to him. So he does that one thing very, very well, and he does it over and over and over and wins rounds. If there's an opening and he can get you out of there, he will do it. If not, he will win rounds and win decisions and win titles and win fights. And that is basically what we saw from some of those other guys I mentioned. There's nothing wrong with it. It just isn't necessarily the most entertaining thing on earth. So you talk about Floyd, uh, Vladimir Klitschko, Andre Ward, Bernard Hopkins. They did have some exciting fights in their careers. They had exciting fights in their careers when they were fighting somebody who was good enough to bring out the dog in them and force them to fight a little bit, force them to respond, right? That, with Andre Ward, you saw that in his fights with Kovalev. Um, with, with Klitschko, his last fight with Anthony Joshua, you saw that in some of his earlier fights, right? I can go on and on. So there were examples of when those guys were forced to do something different. They couldn't just get away with doing what they wanted to do. I think Bevel's going to be the same way. Now, I'm not putting Bevel on the, the level of those all-time great slash Hall of Famers I mentioned. I'm just putting him on their level in terms of mentality, fighter mentality. So how would he fare against, uh, against Kovalev or Alvarez or, or Baturbiev or Gvozdik, Stevenson, any of these guys? We won't know until we see. I will say this much about Bevel. He had, this year in 2018 alone, he had 35 and a half rounds with Sullivan Barrera, Isaac Chalemba, Jean Pascal. He maybe lost three rounds. That was invaluable experience for him. Now, Barrera is still a top 10 light heavyweight. Chalemba is kind of a borderline guy, like on the bubble, and obviously Pascal is way past his best. But those are three quality guys that give anybody in a division a tough night at the office. And for Pascal, only one guy has, has stopped Pascal. For all the good fighters he has faced, only one guy stopped him, and that was Sergei Kovalev. And what that shows is that Sergei Kovalev, who really gets shit on since DeAndre Ward lost, and everyone says, ah, he was never that good to begin with. You know what? That's not true. This fight and some of Pascal's other fights that went to distance show just how special Kovalev was at his best. That dude was very good and punched very, very hard. It could change the game with one punch. Bevel doesn't quite have that punch, but Bevel has a better lifestyle outside of the ring, better training habits, and overall, probably better footwork Slightly better footwork than Kovalev had at his best. So, jury's still out on Bevel as far as is he elite or is he just a shade under elite? I don't know. I just know that he's one of the best top three or four light heavyweights in the world and he truly, truly wants to fight everybody. And he's willing to go anywhere to fight. He's open with fans and media, does his best to, to speak English and answer questions in English when he can. What is not to like about this guy? All of you guys dissing the shit out of him on Twitter because I saw you guys calling him boring and he ain't shit. Calm down. Styles make fights. Give the guy a shot. I still think there's a lot of potential there, all right? Also on this card, and I will butcher this name, I promise you, Marajan Akhmedaliev. It was probably close, probably close. 5-0, four knockouts now with a TKO 9 win over Isaac Zarate. So Akhmedaylev is an Uzbekistani fighter, 315, 300 wins, 15 losses as an amateur, 2016 Olympian, only 24 years old, southpaw, uh, punches with mean intentions, 122-pounder. He was very, very dominant in this fight, did what he was supposed to do. But quite frankly, I wasn't blown away. I just wasn't absolutely blown away. I kind of saw one speed come forward and bust a guy up who was there to be busted up. Now, only his fifth pro fight. 
I think he was trying too hard to go for the stoppage. Obviously, there's a, a ton of potential with this kid. But the HBO broadcast, I thought, was going a little nuts uh, just praising this kid. Great performance, outstanding amateur, but I'd like to see him work on skills, work on setting things up more, work on pitching at different speeds and different angles instead of just coming forward and busting a guy up. That's what I'd like to see from him in his next fight. Also on this card, Russian heavyweight prospect, Sergei Kuzmin, improves to 14-0, 11 knockouts. He had over 200 fights as an amateur, won 227 fights as an amateur before turning pro. Scores a TKO 6 win over Cali heavyweight Laron Mitchell for a minor WBA title. So that was it last week, guys. Let's preview what we got coming up this week. Wednesday, November 28th in Chonburi, Thailand. Knockout CP Freshmark goes up against Nicaraguan Brian Rojas in a 12-rounder. This will be the sixth defense of Freshmart's WBA strawweight title. And of course, uh, Knockout CP Freshmart isn't his real name, but I, I just love saying it because it's one of the best nicknames in boxing because it's so random and out of nowhere. Uh, I, I mean, that would be like me not naming myself uh, Unanimous decision, Kmart. You know what I'm saying? Is Kmart still a thing? I don't even know if Kmart's still in business. Anyway, anyway, back to boxing. This is actually a rematch of a fight from 2016 between these two, where Nayam Chong, or Freshmart, won 115-113 uh, on all three scores. So they had a close competitive fight a couple years ago. Rematch happening Wednesday. Now Friday, November 30th, a bunch of different action around the world including the fights I'm calling, so be sure to check that out if you guys can. But in Australia, in Brisbane, Australia, on ESPN+, Jeff Horn going up against Anthony Mundine in a bit of a homeland grudge match. Uh, Horn is 30 years old, went pro in 2013. Mundine is 43 years old, went pro in 2000. He's fought anywhere from junior middleweight all the way up to light heavyweight. This is a 12-rounder at middleweight, 160 pounds. Now, on paper, there's two ways to look at this. On paper, Mundine is vastly more experienced than, uh, than Horn and has faced better opposition overall. But then, the other way to look at this is Horn is much younger, much fresher, and as long as his face holds up, he doesn't cut or something or get caught with a big shot, uh, he should be able to grind out a close, possibly controversial decision win. That's the way I tend to lean in this matchup. So that's the way I see it. ESPN Plus, check that out. Now, from Hollywood, Florida, there's a Telemundo card. Ricardo Espinoza is, is fighting Yesan Vargas in a 10-round Bantamweight fight. And Derek Cuevas is fighting British Prescott in a welterweight 10-rounder as well. In Florence, Italy, on the zone, uh, a few fights between Italian guys and I think UK guys, but the main event, Fabio Turkey, 15-0, 11 knockouts, fighting in his hometown, he's from there in Florence, going up against a UK fighter, Tony Conquest, his first fight outside of the UK, which most of the time means you're being brought in as an opponent. This is a 12-rounder, a cruiserweight fight. So that is on the zone. Also, Chris Algieri fighting in Huntington, New York. Remember Chris Algieri? Uh, no TV for that. Just saw that he is fighting. I thought that was interesting. So that's it for Friday. Saturday, from San Antonio, Texas, I believe this is a Roy Jones Jr. card, and I think this is going to be streamed on Facebook Watch. In the main event, a 140-pound fight, 10-rounder, Kendo Castaneda. Local hometown boys from there in San Antonio, 14-0, going up against Gilbert Vanegas Jr. out of Illinois. He is 10-0, so somebody's always got to go on Facebook Watch. Quebec City on Showtime. Quebec City, uh, this is a headline or a preview fight 
I guess, would you call it a preview fight? This is like an undercard to the undercard of the uh, Wilder Fury pay-per-view. Adonis Stevenson defending his WBC light heavyweight title for the 10th time against Oleksandr Gavazdik, the nail. So Stevenson is 29-1-1, in 24 knockouts, 41 years old, 5'11", 77-inch reach, and he is a southpaw. And he's southpaw with power, which is troublesome. Gavazdik, 15-0, 12 knockouts, 31 years old, 6'2", 75-inch reach, orthodox. So even though Gavazdik is the taller man, Stevenson has the longer arms. And it's going to be interesting to see how they work all that out because obviously Gavazdik is going to be trying to establish his jab to establish range and get Stevenson off his rhythm. Stevenson's going to be trying to set up that big uh, straight left hand because if anything, he still has power. Now he fought Badu Jack in his last fight, I believe, and uh, I thought he lost that fight, but his power was able to, you know, he was able to get some good shots in there at times. He still has that big left hand. Will he be able to land that on Gavazdik, especially early before Gavazdik really gets into a rhythm? If he does land it, how does the nail respond? For Stevenson, go back to 2013, June of 2013, scores a KO1 win over Chad Dawson. And was the fighter of the year that year. It's been five years. And you look at all the defenses of this WBC light heavyweight title, uh, the never-ending, seemingly never-ending mandatory situation with Eldadir Alvarez that he got out of. And we all saw what Alvarez did to a faded version of Kovalev. Makes you wonder what he would have did to a faded version of Stevenson. Um, you know, he, his time has come. On paper, he should lose this fight. And I have been saying since this fight was signed that Gavazdik is going to go up there to Quebec City and win. And I don't know if he stops Stevenson, but I do think he starts breaking him up late. And I just think if he can get through those early rounds and survive a couple of big left hands that no doubt are going to get through at some point, I think Avazdik's movement, his, uh, his lateral movement, his ability to spin and turn his opponents is going to uh, win him the fight. And I, I, I want to lean towards late stoppage, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say unanimous decision win for Gavazdik, and he becomes the new WBC light heavyweight titleist. And that division is wide open and I just want to see the top guys fight each other. I hope we get that. I believe Gavazdik and Bivol would like to fight each other. And I really, really hope they do in the future. Okay, let's go to Los Angeles Staples Center. Now, you guys let me know. Do you want me to do a live fight commentary for Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder for the main event? Do you want to see me do that? Yes, no, let me know. All right, and I will, um, depending on your guys' interest in that, I will do it. If nobody's really interested, I won't do it. So let me know, okay? But before I get to the main event, quick hits on the undercard, which has a lot of names you might recognize, but really shit matchups. Jarrett Hurd fighting Jason Wellborn. If you haven't heard of Jason Wellborn, don't feel bad. He's 24 and 6 with seven knockouts, seven stoppages in 30 professional fights. He has absolutely no business being in the ring with Jarrett Hurd, let alone being in any title fight. This will be the second defense of Hurd's unified IBF WBA junior middleweight titles. Uh, the third defense for his IBF. He won the vacant IBF first and then unified uh, with uh, Irizlandi Lara earlier this year to grab the WBA titles. Uh, title. So obviously, Hurd is this is a showcase fight for him. He's going to score a devastating stoppage win here. I, how this goes past three or four rounds, I don't know. Lewis King Kong Ortiz going up against Travis Kaufman, 10 round heavyweight fight. Joe Joyce, heavyweight prospect, going up against his most experienced opponent, Joe Hanks, also 10 rounds. 
So you got two heavyweight fights there. It's always fun to see heavyweights. Big boys, you know, always makes it fun. I like both of these fights to end in stoppages. Um, Ortiz is fighting the better opponent. You know, Kaufman is certainly better than Hanks. But, uh, I mean, if, if Luis King Kong Ortiz has anything left in the tank, if he's anywhere near the fighter that he was a few years ago, he should stop Kaufman. And Joyce, after some early uh, learning on the job, if Joyce is who we think he is, he should stop Joe Hanks later in that fight. Now, there is a vacant title fight for the vacant IBF strawweight title, 105 pounds. Mark Bariga versus Carlos Licona. So that's on there too. Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. was supposed to fight Alfredo Angulo, but that fight is probably off because Chavez has not provided the medical paperwork. He hasn't undergone the medical exam. So I doubt that fight's happening. Chris Ariola is also on this card. Robert Guerrero on this card against layups. Anthony Yard is on the card uh, against TBA. No doubt he'll be in there against the pizza boy. So that's the undercard. Now, all things considered, for a $75 pay-per-view here in the States, and it's 20 pounds over in the UK, which is about, I don't know, $22, $23, I think. Um, so you guys over in the UK, for what you're paying, you're just basically paying 20 pounds for the main event. That's not bad. It's really not that bad. It shouldn't be a pay-per-view over there. I think it's kind of shitty that it is, but at least it's just 20 pounds. But here in the States, to pay $75 for this pay-per-view with a complete shit undercard, man, that's, that's a tough sell. That is a very, very tough sell. Now, I've talked to some ticket brokers this morning about how the fight is selling. They expect about 10000 or so. But 10000 or so tickets will probably be sold. It might get punched up to a little over that when they start doing discounts and all that stuff this week which they're, they're already starting to do. They had overpriced some of these tickets early on. I know a few people that bought tickets as soon as this thing was, as soon as tickets were announced. And man, I feel bad because they overpaid for their tickets. Um, just the entire promotion, the way this thing has been promoted, really, really poorly. And this is not the biggest fight of the year, obviously. That was Canelo and Golovkin, their rematch. And you can make an argument that Usyk Gassiev on a global scale uh, was much bigger. Hell, Usyk Bellew was probably at this level on a global scale, to be honest. But in terms of heavyweight fight, obviously it's the biggest fight of the year, biggest fight since Joshua Klitschko. And this thing should just be bigger. It should be, there should be a sellout at Staples Center. And the pay-per-view should at least have a strong co-feature to where you'd think, you'd think, that they do at least half a million buys here in the States. Would you think two of the top three heavyweights fighting each other? Yeah, you'd think, man, that, that's at least half a million pay-per-view buys, right? I, I, don't know, I don't know. This thing's probably going to do about a quarter million. But let's look at the actual matchup. Deontay Wilder going up against Tyson Fury, the eighth defense of his WBC heavyweight title. Wilder is 40-0, 39 knockouts. Fury is 27-0 with 19 knockouts. Wilder, 6'7", 83-inch reach. Fury is listed at 6'9". I don't think he's quite that tall. Maybe a shade under that, 85-inch reach. Both of these guys have really long arms. But Fury is going to have a little more length. He's a little taller. He's going to be punching down at Wilder, which is something Deontay isn't used to. Now, for Fury... People keep pointing to the Vladimir Klitschko fight because you, you look at Klitsch, Klitschko's build, the big right hand, and you compare that to Deontay Wilder in terms of body size and all that. Athleticism, all that good stuff. For Wilder, he really hasn't faced anybody in terms of body size and style and everything that's like Fury. So, so you don't know how Wilder is going to respond. You know, you just kind of won't know until fight night. So I keep going back and forth on this matchup, all right? And for the people who think Fury is going to win, their argument is skills pay the bills. 
And Wilder, yes, he beats a, a Luis Ortiz, who, who is a top 10, maybe, maybe top five heavyweight. He might be. But I've talked to you guys about the medical issues that he had. And by the way, those medical issues, that's not an opinion. That's fact. I've actually talked to people in the New York Commission who explained the situation to me. The guy was not medically cleared to fight until Saturday, the day he fought Deontay Wilder. They literally flew in Charles Martin as a last second replacement. So, so my, uh, the things I say, you know, me, me talking about Luis Ortiz's medical deal, that's not an opinion. That's an actual fact. The guy's had medical problems, okay? We already know about the blood pressure meds and everything else. So yeah, Deontay Wilder got that win. But does that win necessarily prepare him for the skill set and the size, the style matchup, the, the issues that Tyson Fury poses for anybody, including now Deontay Wilder? No. So the argument for the Fury people is that Fury's skills, his boxing craft and ability is simply going to nullify what Wilder wants to do, which is generally speaking, one crazy looping wild right hand out of nowhere that he tries to knock you out with. Now we've seen Wilder fight behind a jab in a disciplined way before, but you gotta go back several years. You gotta go back to that first fight with Berman Stavern where he won this title. For some reason he stopped fighting that way. I really don't know why, but fighting in that style would serve him very well against Tyson Fury. But even if he tried to just stick behind the jab, Fury's head movement, his, uh, his underrated athleticism and agility, and his really, really good timing would give Wilder fits. And so the Fury people are saying they win a decision here because they simply will nullify the one thing Wilder wants to do the way that they nullified Klitschko a few years ago when they fought him. That's one school of thought here. The other school of thought is that Deontay Wilder is younger, he's more explosive, he's more athletic, certainly punches harder. And the big right hand does not come straight down the middle like it does with Klitschko, like it did with Klitschko. It's going to come from crazy angles, it's going to loop, it's going to loop around Fury's guard, and not only that, but in terms of activity, since the Klitschko fight, Fury has fought twice. And he's fought two less than spectacular fighters. One guy was a cruiserweight, and one guy was a shot Francesco Pignetta. Or I won't say shot, but well past his best. And at his best, he was never really that good to begin with. In that same span, Wilder has fought five times. Now, he hasn't fought, you know, all-time greats, but he's fought Spilka, Ariola, Gerald Washington, Stavern again. I mean, some of these were god-awful matchups. And then, of course, Ortiz. But look, the Spilka fight, the Gerald Washington fight, the Luis Ortiz fight. Three good quality opponents. Some of them not quite top 10, but one of them certainly a top 10. One guy may be on the bubble of the top 10. And... Wilder won those fights. So he's been active and he's faced better opposition over the last two to three years. So you factor in the explosiveness, Wilder being in the gym and staying in shape and being active, uh, the, the huge missile of a right hand, you know, all those things together against Fury's inactivity, ballooning up to well over 300 pounds, uh, drug issues. Um, just all of that, and then lack of power. And you got to favor Wilder, the Wilder people would say, to eventually overcome Fury. And that is generally the way I look at this fight. Would it blow my mind if Fury pulled another Klitschko on Wilder? No, it wouldn't blow my mind. But here's why I don't think it'll happen. For all the things I just said about Wilder, but plus, we go back to the one big fight that Fury has had, and that was against Klitschko. And I've talked about this a bunch of times. And again, these are not opinions, these are facts. I've talked to people 
in Klitschko's camp, actual sparring partners who were there in Austria, the whole nine. That was not anywhere near a 100% version of Klitschko that Tyson Fury fought. It was also a Klitschko who admittedly took Fury lightly and did not respect him enough and simply looked like shit. Now, Fury gets credit for the win, and I totally credit him for what he did. He nullified what Klitschko wanted to do and did enough to win rounds. Against Wilder, Wilder number one, at this stage, younger than Vlad was, more explosive, much hungrier than Vlad was, coming off a much better camp, coming in 100% healthy physically, and most importantly, mentally, knows this is the fight of his life, is not taking Fury lightly because unlike Klitschko, he has the benefit of looking back and watching those 12 rounds that Fury and Klitschko had and learning from it. They know what to expect. They're not taking Fury lightly. I think Wilder's going to be tight early on. I think Fury's going to win early rounds. Would not surprise me to see him up 4-2, maybe even 5-1 halfway through this fight. Would not surprise me to see Fury ahead. But I think in the middle to late rounds, Wilder's activity, his unorthodox, crazy angle punches are going to start busting up Fury's guard. And I see Wilder either pulling out a late stoppage win, very, very possible, or pulling out a narrow points win, possibly controversial, getting the decision against Fury. And this is where I'm starting to lean more toward this. Wilder doing enough over the second half of the fight to win a controversial, close decision against Fury, where you have a lot of fans, particularly UK fans, saying Fury should have got the nod, and a lot of American, particularly PBC pom-pom waivers, saying Fury, or I'm sorry, Wilder clearly won. You guys got to look at the politics of this thing. It's a PBC fight. There is a huge, huge event on the line, a multi-fight deal on the line between Wilder and Anthony Joshua. So, I just think he gets the nod here if it's a close fight that goes the distance. So my official prediction, either Wilder by late TKO or close, controversial decision. Let me know what you guys think and let me know if you want me to call the fight live on YouTube, all right? I'll see you at the fights.